0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar.
1: Episode 9, The God Who Dies. Was crucified, died and was buried. Have you ever seen the Hans Holbein painting, The Body of the Dead Christ in the Tomb? It's gruesome. Christ's face is a sickly green-grey tint Rigor mortis is clearly setting in, his feet are blackened. It's a picture of a corpse, death portrayed in grim reality. When the Russian author Dostoevsky stood before this painting in a museum, he said to his wife, a painting like this can make you lose your faith. It obviously had an impact, because a year later when he wrote The Idiot, this painting is given central place, and he gives this same line, A painting like this can make you lose your faith to one of the main characters. Another character wonders how the women who buried Jesus could have believed that he would rise again. Why are responses to this art so strong? After all, Jesus did die, right? What is it about the depiction of a dead Jesus in all its gruesomeness that we find jarring? Why did Dostoevsky consider it such a threat to faith? Well, I wonder if it reflects our feelings about death more generally. Most people tend to be uneasy around death. No one likes to face up to the fact that they will one day die. It's why immortality myths have been around for as long as humans have. The oldest one we know of is the ancient Sumerian account, the Epic of Gilgamesh, written over 2,000 years before Christ. Gilgamesh, the main character, journeys to discover the secret of eternal life which in this case turned out to be a flower from the depths of the ocean. But our mythologies are littered with holy grails and elixirs that confer everlasting life. We've always chafed against the finitude and frailty of human existence. And immortality is perhaps even more of an obsession for us today than it was in Gilgamesh's time. The contemporary Gilgamesh may not believe in miraculous flowers or cups or potions, but the pursuit of immortality remains undaunted in the face of failed attempts. The main difference is that today's immortality quests are technological endeavours, rather than magical ones. Contemporary immortality questers might be injecting stem cells, or taking complicated supplement cocktails. Or here's an even more extreme idea, mind-uploading. Mind uploading is a procedure in which the entirety of the information encoded within the neurons of a human brain is read, copied, and uploaded to a computer. It sounds like science fiction, but is in fact a serious proposal, put forward more than 30 years ago by Hans Moravec, who is a developer of advanced robotics for NASA. Fragile biological existence is traded in for immortal software existence. Pretty extreme, right? This is a bit of a techno-tangent, but you'll have to forgive me because human technological enhancement is the subject of a lot of my academic research. But my point is that people really don't like the idea of death. We're going to get to the resurrection soon enough and how that changes the way we think about death. But we can't get away from the fact that death is a crucial part of the Christian story. Not only did Jesus die, but the creed reminds us of the means of death, crucifixion. This was one of the most barbaric forms of execution in the ancient world, reserved for criminals of the lowest order. Early Christian writer Origen describes it as the utterly vile death of the cross. I can't emphasise how shameful and degrading this way of dying was. And this death is at the centre of the Christian faith, which again testifies to how topsy-turvy the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul stresses that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That God would submit to such an abasing death is inconceivable from the world's perspective but the gospel is the story of God willingly stooping for the sake of creation. Let's hear from Ben about the significance of humility in the world of the early church.
0: The power of the cross in human history is quite amazing to think about. Just forget about the, the salvation that comes to the world through the cross. Just think about the cross as a symbol in the ancient Roman, In ancient Roman civilization, this was a symbol of terror. It would be like looking at a suicide vest or something. It would fill you with fear and terror. It was a reminder of the superior crushing power of Rome in case you were disobedient or rebellious. And now when we lay our loved ones to rest in the ground, what do we do? We, we put a cross in the ground over them as a symbol of our ultimate hope. That is an extraordinary reversal of fortunes. There's never been another symbol in human history that has been so dramatically turned around in this way. And one of the, one of the other kind of examples of the cultural impact of the cross is the fact that in, in the Romans crucified people naked because they didn't just want this to be a painful death. They wanted it to be a humiliating death. Roman culture was really dominated by a conception of pride and honor and glory. It's always good to be raised up and it's always bad to be brought down. Humility was a vice. If you've read Aristotle, for example, it's not a virtue to be humble. It's not a good thing. Magnanimity was regarded as a virtue. That's having a well-adjusted conception of your own worth and being large. And so, so being generous to your inferiors and understanding your proper relationship to them on the social hierarchy, ancient Greco Roman culture has a strong honor, shame kind of hierarchy. And what happens in the cross, the Messiah, the son of God, the savior of the world dies a shameful death in Philippians two, St. Paul describes this as God's descent. God emptying the son of God, emptying himself, taking on the form, not of a ruler, but of a slave, and then going even lower to the point of death and then going even lower, even a humiliating death, death on a cross. Interestingly in our world, even today, what's the virtue pride and, and vain glory and putting yourself first and being aware of your rank in relation to others. These things are not particularly valued in Western civilization anymore humility the capacity to serve the capacity to put the needs of others first the capacity to empty yourself of some of your rights and privileges in order to lend a hand to someone else we 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 just feel it in our guts that this is good well that's a new thing in world history that is that is a, a powerful example of the way the cross of christ has transformed, you could say transformed the human mind, transformed the way we think about what's ultimately important.
1: Again, we come back to this theme, the way the Christian story transforms our notions of power and status and elevates service and humility. So let's return to Holbein's painting of the dead Christ in the tomb. It's unflinchingly honest, but an important reminder to us that Christ truly did die. His solidarity with creation extended to all the gruesome realities of death, a truth that gives all the more power to the resurrection and triumph over death that will turn to soon. But let's not move too quickly beyond the death of Christ. We lose too much if we do. Death comes to all of us, immortality questers included. It's a part of the full human experience. In next episode, we're going to look a little more at the ideas of mourning and lament and how these are also central to the Christian faith. But in the time that we have left now, though, let's take a step back and consider the question of death more generally and its place in creation and the work of God. You're probably familiar with verses like Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says that the wages of sin is death. Is death, therefore, the consequence of sin? This is often how the Genesis creation story is understood. Adam and Eve were enjoying eternal life in the Garden of Eden, courtesy of the Tree of Life, until, cast out because of their sin, they become mortal. If we read the text in a literal sense, then death appears to be the consequence of sin. But if we read the Genesis creation account in light of its genre, things are no longer so straightforward as that understanding that the first few chapters of Genesis is a creation story with parallels to many other stories written in that period of history. We recognise that it is less a record of historical events than an identity statement defining the people of Israel and their relationship to their creator God. We call it a creation myth, although when I say myth, I don't mean something that is not true as it more commonly gets used today. Myths are stories, often to do with origins and identity, that can express a different kind of truth to a historical record or a scientific investigation. What kind of death is referred to in this creation myth? In the story, God warns Adam and Eve that if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. The serpent scoffs at this warning, but actually Adam and Eve don't drop dead upon eating the fruit. It's inconsistent with God's character to make a false threat. So we have to understand this consequence of death to be referring to a spiritual death rather than a physical death, even as we read the story as a creation myth. We'll look at the notion of spiritual death and eternal consequences in a later episode when we consider the line of the creed, the life everlasting. But let's stay with the notion of physical death right now. In a world where agnosticism and atheism and naturalism are common positions, many dread the idea of biological death even apart from questions of eternity. I asked Alistair what he thinks about the notion of death and how it fits into creation, and here's what he had to say.
2: I think this is a wonderful question, and it's quite a difficult one to answer because it's quite hypothetical in certain ways. But let let me talk about this because I think it is very important. If you're someone like Richard Dawkins, then in effect, what you have to say is that death is the price of evolutionary process. That in effect, we have to die to make way for something else for something other. And it's just in effect saying we are part of a process and there's something better that lies ahead. So in effect, we are redundant. And once we die, something better will happen. It's a very negative view, I think. You know, for me, however, we can say rather more than that. And what I want to emphasize is that in many ways for me death is a reminder that if human existence is all that there is in other words we are only significant for the time we are here then that challenges us it's an existential threat in other words who are we do we really matter and for me death is indeed part of the way the world is but it's not because this is something that's wrong with things if you like it's an inbuilt trigger to say to us there is more to life than physical existence and we have this slot on earth, this allocated time if you like, during which we can figure out what the bigger point of the whole thing is. So for me death is a very important thing because it is in confronting its reality that we begin to realize who we are, what we're really all about. So for me, it's actually a very important thing to think about. And actually, many people are thinking about this more during the uh, COVID crisis than um, previously, simply because it is such an ever-present threat. And we need to see that threat as a gateway to insight and then a gateway to transformation through gospel realities. Death is part of the natural process. We have to get used to that. But one of the things about human nature is, we are created by God to transcend the natural processes. Our true identity and nature lies beyond the natural world. Death is in effect reminding us that if we think our true significance lies simply in being part of the natural process, we are missing out on who we really are, and what we're meant to be doing. For me, death is neutral, simple as that. Uh, you know you can interpret it this way, interpret it that way. It actually it's neutral, but you and I can transform what otherwise is something that is despairing to something which is hopeful.
1: Is physical death a consequence of sin? Was there no such thing as death before sin entered the world? In terms of the natural world, the death of plants and animals is vital for the healthy functioning of ecosystems. So at least when it comes to non-human life, death seems to have been part of the original creation. So what about us? One of the clearest pictures of life and death in the context of sin comes from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30. Moses speaks on God's behalf to the gathered people of Israel as they are poised to enter the promised land. And here's what he has to say. I have set before you today life, If your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. If we keep reading the story of Israel, we find that they did not choose life after all. And life, according to Moses' prophecy, translates to covenant obedience and the blessings of peace and prosperity in the land. Israel is disobedient to the covenant. They are not suddenly struck dead. The so-called death Moses warns of consists of hardship and eventual exile from the land. This doesn't seem to be speaking of physical death after all. In fact, When it comes to physical death, the Old Testament describes examples of good deaths, even for humans. King David is said to have died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth and honour, for example. The warning of death in Moses' prophecy might instead be understood in the sense of a spiritual death. It's about disconnect from the land, but more importantly from relationship with God. This, I think is the way in which we can understand death to be a consequence of sin. Sin distances us from God. It distorts the relationship we have with the rest of the created world. The question of physical death is a little more contested, with different theologians arguing both for and against its existence before the fall. And this also brings up questions about how we understand the original creation, how we picture heaven. We'll look at some of these topics in later episodes. But reflecting on what we've covered today, I invite you to examine your own thoughts about death. Do you recoil at the sight of Holween's dead Christ? Do you think death is a natural part of life or something to overcome?
0: This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.